Radio Waste. Facebook. Love it or hate it, it has changed the way we deal with each other. How we stay in touch, communication overall. It's got its negatives and it's got its positives. But one of the weirder things Facebook created were friends we've never met. My friends list has so many people I've had amazing conversations with online that I've never had a conversation with face-to-face in real life. And a lot of people on my friends list have interesting careers, interesting lives. So I'm going to interview those people from time to time. I don't remember how I met this guy, man. I don't remember if I friended him or he friended me. I just remember at first, years ago, trying to figure him out. His sense of humor was better than the sense of humor that my friends have and better than mine. But I think a few years went by and then I clicked on his page and I saw his resume and it all came together. It made sense. All right. He's a joke writer. He understands comedy. The amount of television shows he's worked on as a writer was pretty crazy to me. I'm not in the business. He's written for some pretty popular TV shows and he's written jokes for some of the greatest comics of all time. Also, you know, these friends we've met over the years online, some of them, you you feel like get it. They nail everything in their responses or their posts that connect with you. So my next guest, his name is Robert Raymond. I saw a couple of weeks ago that he posted a new show he was working on, a show about aliens and UFOs right up my alley. And I was like, hey, dude, come on my podcast. Tell me about the show. And I'm going to ask you a million different dumb questions about what you do for a living because I find it fascinating. TV writers, they are the unsung heroes. They're the reason why you're hooked on shows like Ozark and Breaking Bad. It's the writers. Yeah, the actors and actresses get all the credit, but it's the writers. And Robert's one of them. How long have you been in the business, dude? Definitely, I'd say over 20 years. Like professionally, yeah. How old were you when you got your first break? About 21, I started writing and selling jokes to uh, Politically Incorrect when they were on Comedy Central. So was writing jokes what you set out to do? Actually, no. I like never really thought I was funny. Yeah, I wanted to write movies and, and TV, and then I started doing stand-up, and just for the heck of it, one day I went to taping uh, Politically Incorrect, and after the show, I saw a guy on the floor with like, a headset on and a tie, and I'm like, oh, he must work here. He must be official. And I just like asked him, like, you guys like, look for writers or freelancers. And he's like, do you write comedy? And I said, yeah. And he's like, okay, here's my email address. Send me some of your jokes. And the thing was, I'd never written, like, a topical joke before. I just kind of lied to him. Right. And and I went home, and I bought three newspapers, and I kicked out, like, 20 jokes. I'm sure maybe two of them were good. And I got them to him, and they, like, offered me a contract to start selling and pay me per joke. That was my first ever paid writing thing. And then what happened around that, that same time, I had like an in at um, Saturday Night Live to get in for um, show tapings. I went in and one night I got into an after show party, which, you know, their after show parties are like really hard to get into because it's a different location every week. And they pass out these little pieces of paper that tell you where to go because like not everybody can go to them. Right. And I managed to get in the one. The producer from Politically Incorrect, who I knew, was there. And I was talking to him, and after he left, I started talking to Norm MacDonald, who was doing Update at the time. I feel like people sleep on that guy. He's so good. They do, but it's also kind of because of him. He doesn't, like, seek that out, you know? I mean, even then, he was always, like, to himself. But at the, the after-show party, he's, like, asked me how I know Doug, this producer. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm kind of pumping myself up. I'm like, oh, I write for Bill Maher's monologue. 
And Norm just kind of half joking. He's like, oh, yeah, well, how come you don't write for me? And I'm like, well, you never asked. And he goes, well, this is me asking. And then I literally <laughs> also started selling jokes to Norm that same time. That's how it started. So it was like, by then I was like 22. And then I just I fell into TV comedy writing. I started doing um, talk shows and sketch comedy shows like um, when Keenan Ivory Wayans had his talk show and uh, Late Late with Craig Kilborn and then um, like first four seasons of uh, Man Show and then... Um, did you stay or did you have to move out to California just to kind of make some connections? Well, what, what had happened at that time, the SNL time, I had actually moved to Florida for like high school, was a club promoter in Miami Beach for a while, and then moved back to New York first time when I was 19. After that time, I had actually left New York, went back to Miami. I was like, oh, I can't do this for a living. I'm going to get busted as like a fraud. So I tried to like do like real world stuff again, but I, I couldn't. And I just um, bolted out to Los Angeles with like a duffel bag and a suitcase and maybe like $300 in my pocket. And during my first writing gig in Los Angeles, I was actually sleeping in the park. What were you doing? There was a show called Dinner and a Movie on TBS, which had like hosts cooking a meal while like presenting a movie. And there were two comedians and I started writing their segments. And that was like my first ever paid gig in L.A., and then from that, I got, um, when Keenan Ivory Wayans was doing his talk show, I kind of lied my way into meeting for that <laughs> and then got the gig. And that was like my first official full-time writing gig. But that's going to happen a lot. I'm sure you're not the first guy who lied his way into it. What's funny is um, on my resume that I submitted, I actually, only two of my credits were real, the uh, <laughs> Norm MacDonald and the Bill Maher. Right. I started using my middle name for my last name. So Norm and Bill, like their shows, knew me by my real last name. So Keenan's show actually called up those shows for like references and they're like, we've never heard of the guy. Oh no. But Keenan told me it was like, like three months into their job one day, it was just him and I at the office and he told me, and that actually made me more impressive in his eyes because he thought I completely lied <laughs> to get into the meeting. But then when I got into the meeting, I had the goods. So he thought that showed like real confidence on my part. That's awesome. Yeah. With joke writing, have you had comics steal your jokes or not give you credit the biggest thing with that is that like nothing's original in comedy and this i learned when i was working again working on talk shows when you're writing the monologue you've got like a staff of like 12 to 14 sometimes 20 writers on like every nightly show right even if out of half of those are working on the monologue when something happens in the news almost everybody's going to write the same first joke and then we had what we called the faxers. And even though by then it was email, those were the freelancers who got paid, like how I started, paid per joke. So like email submissions every day. And you have like two dozen people faxing and emailing and jokes. And the thing is, you don't want to go to those because, you know, union gigs, they're paying you like back then, like $2,500, $3,000 a week to write jokes. They're going to use your jokes. They're not going to go and then pay somebody else. They're like, do your job. But the thing is, is when these things would hit on the air, the next day, people would call to, to claim the joke to get paid, and you'd have to tell them, like, look, six people here wrote the joke. But now they're walking around telling everybody you stole it from them because they don't get that, like, even the, what they think is the most original take on something isn't. Like, you see on, on social media every day how quickly everybody comes up with the, the same joke when something happens. You know, you've got your cartoon of it, your film sketch of it, or just somebody's status update are all telling they all came up with it on their own. But the thing is, is going back to what you were asking that roundway, like contrary to what a lot of people think, a lot of places aren't going to steal your joke because first of all, it's not their money. And even the stage comic two point, they're really not going to steal from you 
Because if they steal from you, they have that access to you and to that well once. But if they pay you something that's like nothing to them, you will keep submitting and giving them more material. You know, Jimmy Walker, when he was a comic, Jimmy Walker hired guys to write for him. And so his career kind of stalled out. Meanwhile, three of the guys who wrote for his act, who he paid, and sometimes and sometimes they'll rip you off, but again, it's like, you know, if they steal one for every three they pay you for, the hell with it. Just keep doing it, you know? It's like every other job in America. But like, like Jimmy Walker, three of his writers who helped him get famous as a stand-up were Letterman, Leno, and Byron Allen, who are all, like, went on to become huge, like, media forces. Absolutely. So yeah. you're in your early mid twenties. You're meeting these stars and celebrities. Do you still get starstruck meeting those guys these days? Yeah, I still do. To, definitely to this day, especially in the early days. For me, it was especially comedy people like Jonathan Winters, Don Rickles. Like you know, when you meant like those guys. When I worked on Howie Mandel's talk show, we taped in Carson's old studio. You know, and like wow. the first day there, we're going in this stage, and we actually found boxes of old Carson uh, cue cards. And we all like kept a bunch of them. Oh, I would too. I'd frame those. Yeah, man. that's what I did. Honestly, I, g- I gave them out to people as gifts. I framed them and gave them out as gifts. Like the ones where it had a, g- a good joke or when he announced that night's guest lineup. That's great. I mean, when I first met um, Keenan, when I was going in for an interview with him, you know, like Hollywood Shuffle in Living Color, those are the things that kind of revived comedy in my life that made me think maybe I can do this. So, you know, I go in for my meeting and I'm thinking, again, go, you know, it's my first ever time going to like a, a pitch meeting, a job meeting like this. So I think I'm going to go into some big like corporate office room with a giant round table and like 15 people. And I'm just bought into this little like closet room and he's sitting opposite an office desk from me and he's an imposing dude. But also I'm like, okay, you're a guy who's like movies and shows I grew up on. It's hard not to get intimidated. But, you know, then you start working for the, the guy and, you know, he's just a boss like every other boss and you start getting sick of him. Then people drop in. My, um, like, I remember when uh, we were gearing up for our first weeks of, sh- of shows that came in. It was three months of pre-production and people were already wiped out and burned out. And then on our second episode, we had on... Um, Sam Jackson, and I had written a sketch that was like redubbing Pulp Fiction lines. You know, I'm cranking it out, and it's like a factory. All the writers write, you pass it off to the directors and the producers, and you just keep churning stuff out in your offices. And they were like, well, we need somebody down there. Sam wants somebody in, in the, the edit bay with him. And they're like, you wrote it. So I'm like, okay, fine. Like, it's a hassle. <laughs> but then I get into this little edit bay, and it's Samuel L. Jackson right there. What's he like in person? Is he cool? He's the coolest, like, chillest guy, but then I had to have him redub the line as Jules. So, like, I'm sitting in the room, and again, it's my first full-time gig. Right. He does the line all badass, like Jules, and scares the hell out of me. <laughs> and then something after he's done, he goes, was that good? How do you want the next one? And then it, it clicks in my head. I'm thinking, holy, mm, I'm directing Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> and he's asking me to. And, like, for... You know, I was like 24, 25 at the yeah. time. Yeah. That was like the biggest, oh my God, moment. But then my face, I'm trying to be like, yeah, you know, I, I thought it was perfect, but I, I'm like, well, maybe next time you could do it a little more like this. <laughs> and now I have to bluff because I'm like, I have to sound like I know what I'm doing. That's you know? great, man. How did you make yeah. the transition from joke writing into uh, other genres of television? I'd been in LA for a few years. Was, again, doing like Best Amps for X-Play, everything like that. Wrote a movie, had that made that went nowhere and then um i had left 
uh, Los Angeles and moved back to Florida. And I fell in with this company out of Orlando because they were like the only television production company I could find. They were doing reality TV and it just so happened uh, they produced Hogan Knows Best. And they got their first, like after doing two half seasons of Hogan, VH1 wanted a full season and they needed to, to even with the reality show, you kind of have to first hit the network and show them that you have a season's worth of ideas to shoot. I reached out to this company, and when they found out I was a writer, they are like, could you help us come up with these ideas for, for episodes for, for Hogan? And I was like, yeah. And I kicked out just a bunch of like possible things based on what they were telling me, what the family's got going on, and, and just other kind of like reality show ideas that I kind of ripped off from what I heard. I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with, I didn't realize reality used like producers, like writers who can produce to create stuff for them. I was very ignorant of the genre, genre at the time. So I kicked all this stuff out and then they asked me like, do you know how to edit? And I lied and I said a little bit. So they, they hired me and Hogan Knows Best was the first reality show I ever worked on. That was like two and a half seasons of, that was a great gig because you, you spent like the week at Hulk Hogan's house and, you know, producing it in the field just to make sure they're getting your story and you have enough footage. Then go back to the office and with a laptop, you take all the footage and you cut it down into a story. And it's what I equate it to. It's, it's like writing a script after the movie's been shot. All the ideas that you want, because even, you know, there's some reality shows that honestly are, are pretty fully beat out and almost rehearsed scripted, like... And you can tell those, but usually others, the basic gist of it is however you get them to a situation or to a place might be BS, but then once they're there, what happens is, is real. And I, I, I tend to find that most people think that the things on a reality show that are the realest people tend to think is fake and vice versa, you know? And then especially for working with Hulk, it was the whole extra layer of coming from the world of professional wrestling. He already kind of treads the line between playing a character, living as himself, but also blurring the lines even in his own head between right. the two. Right. He's walking around as a character to begin with. So I'm sure right. his life, kind of like Andrew Dice Clay, I mean, that guy wasn't yeah. Dice Man in the beginning, but right. you know, when you're in entertainment like that, you, you kind of take on that persona, man. Yeah, exactly. He was like an impressionist, and Dice was one of his, the characters. But then it took off, and then people start expecting that guy, and you become that guy. It happens to radio personalities, too. When you're getting into yeah. a, a radio station, they want you to cater to a certain audience. You've yeah. got to kind of play that role, and then, you know, before yeah. you know it, you know, if you're like me and you're working in rock, fucking your life up. <laughs> yeah. And, that's, and everybody thinks you were that guy, you know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, look, look at all the years in L.A. that, you know, Ryan Seacrest was just an afternoon drive time DJ like auditioning for pilots every year that like went nowhere, you know? Right. And then gets the hosting gig. But that's it. Is everybody thinks you're identified with that station. Like you're not just working for the rock station. You know everything there is about rock. Did yeah. you have a uh, favorite reality show that you wrote for? Uh, looking back, best, one of the best ones I worked on, I think, was Wife Swap. Really? Why? Yeah, Wife Swap was fun. You're you're really embedded with these people for like two weeks, and you have no contact with like anybody in your personal life, and you're with them from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed, and then you're getting ready for the next day shoot. So it's like you're not watching the news, you're you're not aware of what's going on in the world, and you're just like either in like at somebody's farmhouse or in your hotel. So it's kind of like a Stanford prison experiment kind of thing. Like you're all in it together. 
and then you come back home and you're just back to the real world. And like balloon boy was my episode. So like when that stuff started going down and they were like, there's a craft flying over Colorado. Yeah. That was a big episode. And they think there's a child in it yep. and just kidding around in their office. They go, Oh my God, Richard, la- Richard launched Falcon into the air. <laughs> and then it comes out like an hour later, Richard Heaney. And like, we just knew this because, we had the footage of him actually building that thing in the first place. When it comes to writing, is it is it better to have a gig in joke writing or reality TV? Joke. Because joke, like most of those, like the regular talk shows and everything, they're all like Writers Guild union jobs and like the pay is through uh, the roof. And, and most reality, they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're considered non-union. So even though you do the same gig and the same work, that it's significantly a different pay period. And also... With shows like reality and things like that, you're really only gigging for like three to six months when the show's in production. So you're looking for a new job every three months. Even if your show comes back for another season, it might not come back till that whole season you just shot airs. So you could be out of work six months waiting to go back to work. That's why like my credits are are all over the place. Like I started doing crime because we were in between seasons on Wife Swap and I did my first true crime show. And that was great, but that was really heady because doing true crime is a fun genre to do because you're meeting these people, you're meeting the FBI agents, you're meeting the killers, you're meeting the victims, but you're writing, directing, producing reenactments, but also you're going to where things happen. You're, it also gets in your head because you're looking at everything that has to go on air. So like you get all the files and you get all the pictures and you get the weird videos the killers made and you have to go through it all and decide what you can like use on air or what you can get through. And it really gets crazy after a while. Like, I, I mean, I, I interviewed two guys on, on death row in Texas and they're both dead now. You build this relationship because you're reaching out while they're in jail, you're writing back and forth, you're sending them books, you're trying to get them to talk to you on camera. At any point, it can fall apart. And then, so you finally do. And when you interview them, you know, it's Texas. They're only giving you like an hour with these guys because they don't want them to get famous. So they really limit their press access. And so you finally go there and you talk to a guy for an hour, but it's like after like seven months of letter writing and building a relationship. And then you're like, you know, a year and a half later, he's executed and it's awful. But the first thing I think of is, I at least hope you read all the books I bought him <laughs> because I, <laughs> I think that money is just getting wasted. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> So what is the goal? I'm sure it's different with everybody who's in your profession, man, but is the goal to keep writing or is it to come up with a great idea and sell it to the network? Well, it's funny to say, because right now, I, first of all, I'd like, I just wrapped one of like the coolest shows I worked on in a long time, which um, Aliens in Alaska. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a second, man. That one. And what I, what right now with that one, I just pitched an idea to that company I can't get into the idea, but I just put right. the ideas in the company and they really like it. So they're going to shop it around. So like if I stay in this type of TV, that to me is the goal because like you create a show and then if you can keep that momentum going, you, you, you know, you get a reputation as a guy who can create and run shows. And honestly, there are big companies like, um, ITV, a company I work for frequently, they do, um, Forge and Fire, they do Pawn Stars. They also try like, 10 or 12 shows a year that go nowhere. But the thing is, is they have the luxury of trying to find something that hits. So it's like, if you create something that does well, that at least gives you that cushion to then keep trying new things. And part of the thing, everybody's always willing to get into unscripted TV, which is kind of like the blanket term for all reality. Now they want to get away from like using the term reality for the shows that are more set up. But 
you do that, it's like I said, it's still low budget, but it's low enough that everybody wants wants to try it, and networks are always making a deal on it, like the new um, Discovery Plus, the new Discovery streaming service is out, and they have, like, everything that's ever been on any Discovery network, but they also, right now, want to put out 200 original series. Yeah, let's get into the show. Aliens in Alaska, it deals with subject matter that fascinates me, millions of other people. What's the show about? Every episode is, like, I'd say, like, four to six different different stories, like a storied act, and it's all... It's all like first-person tales of either things that happened to the people telling it or like to their parents if it happened a long time ago and they're, they're passed away. I'd say out of all these people, I believe that they believe it. Yeah. I don't believe anybody was just like joshing with us. But then, and then there are some that I'm like, okay, there are some where I'll be like, eh, I don't necessarily believe what they believe they saw. But then there are others where it's like we have former military people. You know, we have... One story we have with um, the Alaska Black Pyramid, which is this rumored pyramid that was is found buried under the ground in Alaska and, and, and creates its own source of energy, and there's dead spots in the air over it. 20 miles east of this small podunk town, they built like a road that goes to nowhere, and, and um, they built a, um, a runway like four miles away from this town's airport. So it's kind of like what's going on out there. And one of our interviews is with this guy who in the 80s was a top secret communications guy actually first based in Germany and pre-email when they were doing everything almost like on telex. And he would get all the sensitive material coming in from everywhere around the world, type it up, and then transfer it to the next area. And we filmed him in shadows, and he's talking about, like, the Alaska Black Pyramid and how he saw messages that pertain to that coming across. And now he feels like he still feels like he shouldn't talk about it but he's been retired for like 20 years and he's talking about it. And then we have um, two now retired air force people who they were transferred from the base in Alaska to Florida. And on their doing the, the drive with their kids, their van suddenly like saw flashing lights over them. And then they lost all power in their car. And the, the husband went out to check on the car. And this, this thing was speeding a mile away and back and like no time flashing over them. And they're both the air force and they were both radar techs. So they kind of know how to identify pretty much anything in the air over Alaska, including like top secret U.S. ships, but also like Russian military, because that was their job. And now it's like, you know, 20 years later, and the, the husband's hair kept changing color for like <laughs> years after that. And he had these fainting spells. And, and he's the only one who got out of the car. And he's the only one who's had these results. And he was sick for like months after it. And they waited until they retired to go public with their story, because they're like, if you say you saw something while you're still in the Air Force, you're basically sent, yep. you know, to the psych ward and you're dishonorably discharged and you're, you know, so. I love the interviews with uh, military, former military. Have you ever listened to Commander David, what's his name? Commander David Fravor. He was the one that chased the Tic Tac UFO. Yes. And actually we have some of the footage of Tic, uh, Tic Tac UFO on here because we have a woman who spotted something similar and she talks about how when they released those videos that she realized that's what she saw the thing with too is with alaska is you have like the most something like the most military bases there and they were all set up at first for cold war defense part of it is a lot of people would think the same with like area 51 are these just like unknown military planes but the sightings and the people we have and that the great thing in this show is we have a lot of evidence from these people you know yeah we have a pilot who was 
flying over the Aleutian Islands, and it is very much believed in Alaska that there are underwater bases, you know, and also it's just that so much of Alaska really is, is untouched. If you look up the Alaska Triangle, which is Alaska's Bermuda Triangle, which is where, where, where so many people have been reported missing and there's been so many sightings and the, the rumor of possible bases. And it's, I mean, to me, it's all more than viable. And it's just like there's too many of these things to be brushed off. When you have people from, from different areas of the state all coming to you independently describing the same thing, especially now it's tough because we, we did some older stories because it's tough in this day too, the, the, the internet and everything being connected. When people report stuff like MUFON and everything, of course, you're always worried, oh, people can just copy. But there's so much more detail that people have that doesn't get public, but then that is similar. Does the show venture off into other paranormal activity like ghosts, Bigfoot, stuff like that? There's some creature stuff in it. I mean, honestly, the like our mandate was to keep, because it's aliens in Alaska, we wanted to try to make sure we kept it away from anything too supernatural right. or but there are some creature stories, and of course there are people who believe, and too if you look up online, you'll see the connections that people make between Bigfoot and UFOs. And like there's a lot of really viable connections to that, but there's like there's one story that was previewed in our Christmas Eve episode that's coming up in a later episode. It's really fascinating. It was about that we have this one guy who claimed when he was like nine he saw this creature in the woods in this area that felt kind of very cold with these like eyes and maybe some sort of antlers or horns on it. And it looked like something on four legs and then stood up and it was like nine feet tall. It just bolted into the woods. And it wasn't like the conventional Bigfoot. It was more like you might think like a Wendigo or something. Then we interviewed his father and his grandmother. And then the father on his own came out with a story that like... 30 years before his son's experience, he saw something in the same spot. And the way he described it, not hearing his son's story, it literally sounded like almost like a younger version of the thing his son described seeing 30 years later. Wow, that's crazy. Then we talked to the grandmother, and she wound up telling us two stories of um, two sightings she had. One of a weird creature going across the road, and then another one, like, going back to the 70s, of when her car was followed one night by, by a light that was flying oddly. And this all just came out originally going to talk to the son about his story. And then we also get into the legends of like the Athabascan people and, and other who are natives to Alaska who have cave drawings with UFOs and creatures coming out of the UFOs. And you really realize that like a lot of what people thought were legend, like Bigfoot and the Yeti and stuff in Alaska can also be tied to UFOs. Fascinating. Love this stuff. So yeah. people can check it out. Discovery Plus app. They released new episodes on Monday. There's eight episodes right now in the season total. And the second episode just dropped uh, this past Monday, upcoming Monday, the 20-whatever. I'm not good. I think it's March 1st, Monday. It's Monday. Would be the third episode dropping. Hour-long show. And like I said, it's got that kind of like that dateline or set up where you know it's talking heads everybody telling a different story with reenactment and and we use a lot of the footage that these people actually capture themselves we use as well as archive of old ufo sightings and footage well listen i appreciate you taking the time to talk it was due man finally got to talk to you no it's definitely due it's great talking to you man anytime you want to talk again sounds good thanks robert all right thank you Make sure to check out my radio show Monday through Friday on 96.9 The Rock or tune in online 969therock.com.